that uh, last year when COVID started to get crazy, we just decided we're getting out of California. We got, uh, we rented an RV and went down to Texas and through New Mexico. It was just amazing. There's a whole culture, RV subculture that we just fell it's in love with. It's a different, it's a different world, isn't it? It's, uh, it is. Yeah. Uh, so we so, leave on, well, God willing, we leave on the 29th next week and uh, pretty much four to six months. Right. Or longer. Or longer, yeah. Wow. Where are you going? Uh, everywhere and anywhere where we can talk to students and uh, parents and benefactors about the college. So probably go up, we'll go up through California, Oregon, uh, Lander, um, Wyoming, Lincoln, and then up through the Minnesota. And uh, Great. If you come to Northern California, we'd love to have you over for dinner. Yes. Is it Sacramento? Is that where you are? Uh, by the time you get up to us, we're probably going to be in Pilot Hill, which is a little bit east of Sacramento in the foothills. Okay. Uh, Very good. Hopefully with space, you can park your RV. So That's I was going to say, you can park your RV at my parents' house too. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Nicole. You're closer to I-80. <laughs> <laughs> That's Very good. good. Well, great. Let's get into it then. Okay. Uh, all right. So everything we do at the Albertus Magnus Institute is is so freeing. It's it's offered for free. And with that, we would like to welcome both Freeze, Doctors Free, Helen and John Free, our, our lovely and erudite senior fellows at the Albertus Magnus Institute's fellowship. So welcome to you both. Uh, I'm, I'm extremely excited about the uh, Kateri College of the Liberal and Practical Arts that you are both founding. And um, just, you know, from having founded a little educational in initiative, it's tough. And, <laughs> uh, and, and you decided to go, go full bore. You're going to found, you're found you've, you have founded what will become a brick and mortar college. Tell us why. Yes. You want to start? Sure. Um, well, thanks. Thanks, John, uh, for having us. Um, well, it's been on our mind, the idea, the concept uh, for all of about uh, 10 years now. Uh, part of it has to do with what, what's happening in higher education, uh, the value of higher education, the, the inability to teach some of those basic skills to think and analyze. And uh, we see it. We saw it on the secondary school level. And we certainly saw it even at the college level, even at good colleges, uh, which, uh, which spoke to us about the need to, um, to, to really form, form intellects uh, so that people can be good, good citizens. But then apart from that, there's this issue of a, a divorce or a separation between, between the so-called liberal arts, uh, the intellectual pursuits and the hard, the hard skills and that divorce, uh, our idea is that divorce between those two worlds has, has caused both of those worlds to be, to be impoverished. Um, really, if you go back, there's a kind of uh, Benedictine connection, though, the education of the whole person, which is <clears throat> many colleges talk about in their promotional literature, but um, they, they don't really, I don't think they really, they really achieve that education of the whole person. Um, so, so before we talk about the divorce, tell sure. us about the distinction. What is the what is a liberal art versus a practical art, and how are they complementary? Sure. Well, the liberal arts, of course, in the classical understanding of it, are the studies of theology, 
philosophy, poetry, uh, the sciences, uh, and that is much more of the, uh, the intellectual side of, of man. But when you talk then about the vocational or practical, uh, those are the manual skills that once were very much part of everyone's life, simply as the way that uh, we had to live. You also learned alongside your intellectual, your intellectual education, you learned almost uh, as part of your life how to do certain very practical things. But within the course of the 20th century, that divorce between intellectual education and practical ability uh, became separate so that you no longer really had to know how things worked. You could just pay someone who wasn't <laughs> as quote unquote well-educated as you to, for instance, plumb your house. Um, things also became more specialized. So you needed to pay someone who knew about, for instance, electricity to wire your home. Um, but what we face now is a type of situation in which those who are uh, liberally educated, or we could just say educated in a four-year university setting, um, have become increasingly impractical. They do not know how to do something actual. They know how to think, they know how to work with numbers. Um, but if you asked them practical things, as in, could you put in this window? Are you able to put in a door? Um, could you replace the fan in your house? Uh, many of them may not know how to do that. Um, and they might say that's beneath me. I, I have other things, I have better things to do. I'll go ahead and pay a tradesman to do those things. Um, and so when we talk about the, uh, the need to remarry the liberal and the practical arts, that's what we're talking about, is to be able to educate young men and young women both in the traditional liberal arts, but also to allow them to learn to work with their hands and to learn a very particular trade skill and hopefully a trade skill that is currently in demand for the job market as America faces it right now. Now the, the naysayer might say, so what if a liberally educated man uh, can't you know, plumb a, a sink or you know, if he has soft hands, if he can think, <laughs> that's that's the end in itself that's that's all you need to do you're not going to be laying concrete in heaven uh sure. so he sure. he just jumped a step right um, sure. how do the practical arts actually uh help cultivate the liberal arts i think plato spoke about the role of gymnastic in mm -hmm. education which is a strange thing Mm -hmm. uh, and I think places like Wyoming Catholic have really figured this out, right? Hit, hit pay dirt by integrating the liberal sure. and the practical. But how, do, sure. how does the practical actually benefit the liberal? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting if you look at these both worlds and, and we were four years at Wyoming Catholic. It was a great, great experience for us teaching there. But if you look at these both worlds, there are different skills and indeed different virtues that are cultivated in both of those worlds. And together they complement, they complement each other. Um, and separated, um, you lead to, it, it can lead and it has led in our experience to, um, to a kind of unreality and a mutual, even a mutual resentment from one side to the other. So the, the liberally educated person could have the temptation to, as Helen said earlier, look down their noses at those that do manual work those that do manual work feel feel uh, keenly being looked down 
uh, noses at and as a result are, are resentful and, and are tempted then to dismiss the whole world of book learning as being not practical, head in the clouds. And we get that as far back as, as uh, Euripides in his depiction of Socrates, you know, uh, out of touch with reality. Someone in the trades recently, a farmer, asked me, well, what, um, what about the liberal arts? What do, they actually, what do they actually do for the person? How are they needed? And we got into an interesting, fascinating conversation. And, and I said, well, from one point of view, what is more practical or pragmatic than the ability to think and analyze and separate truth from falsehood? Because if we don't have that basic skill as a human being, um, we become vulnerable to demagogues and to totalitarian approaches, no? So the liberal arts and even, even, uh, even something like poetry, if it's great poetry, it's eminently practical. <laughs> and likewise, on the, other, on the other side, the manual trades are not simply, are not simply manual uh, 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 skills, but they actually, they actually cultivate a certain way of thinking about reality which are in the in and of themselves important talents and, and, and virtues. Yeah, and also just to continue um, with that question of why should the intellectual uh, intellectual man have to bother with the manual trades? In some sense, you risk a type of uh, of angelism when you are dismissing that physical aspect of the human person. Because if you think about the way God has created man. God did not create man to be an angel. He created us with a body and a soul. And the liberal arts allows man to begin to transcend the physical, to transcend the earthly, and to, to turn our minds to the eternal, turn our minds to the uh, godlike state that, that the Lord created us to be. Um, but we, of course, are of the earth. And so to connect the intellectual back to the earthly through the manual trades um, is, is I think very healthy from a spiritual perspective. Because if you look at Jesus Christ himself, the perfect man, uh, Jesus was not a, a, an intellectual. He was an intellectual and a laborer. He himself was both. He comes from the, uh, the manual trades class with Joseph um, he himself associates with the, the uneducated fellow laborers, but he, of course, is, is guiding everyone towards the truth, the, the eternal truths. Um, and he does that uh, through story, through teaching, through a type of intellectualism, but a type of intellectualism that still is firmly grounded in things of, of this earth. And that, I think, is the problem that you face with a lot of four-year education at this point, is this separation. We were separated into, into disciplines, disciplines that are no longer interdisciplinary in nature. Um, a good liberal arts education, I think, is better than a specialized education, because at least with the liberal arts, you already have an interdisciplinary approach to learning. But if you can pull back in as you said, the gymnastic side of it, if you can pull back in the physical or the manual into the integrated liberal arts, then you have a fully integrated education to help with for the formation of a, of a fully human. Wow, there's person. a lot there. So Jesus is not an intellectual. That's really good. He's not an intellectual, though he be the object of the intellect. 
That's there's true. something, there's a beautiful uh, parallel within the life of Christ. Um, well, well, they, they, they accuse him of this. The Pharisees accuse him. They, they say something like, isn't this the son of the carpenter? Like, Felius Fabri or something like that. Yes. But as you know, right, Fab, Fab, Fabrus, the maker, is it, who is this? Isn't he the son of the maker? Um, mm-hmm. So his very divinity and, and, and divine lineage is, is sort of hidden in germ in his work as a carpenter. Yes. And, and we all know, and if you've seen the movie Office Space, probably, right, there's something contemplative and illuminating and very philosophical about just swinging a hammer that's right. <laughs> you can't really achieve, as, you've, as you probably noticed from spending time around graduate schools where people just become so compartmentalized <laughs> and disaffiliated with the whole of reality and That's sort right. of in, in, in on themselves in a way that makes them scared of everything else. It's kind of a terrifying situation that yes. could be fixed with, with gymnastic, with, with yeah. some, something about using the body gives you a certain yeah. disposition toward the rest of things. I, I think, John, I think each side, each realm helps to normalize or, or humanize the other. I think that's the point. Yes. Um, consider, consider this. I mean, the, the undergraduates um, of, the early, um, of the early 20th century, late 19th century, when, of course, fewer uh, men and, and, and women especially went to college, went to university, most of them came out of farms and ranches. They had already acquired as teenagers some of the skills that are now that are now completely absent. And and I guess our our contention would be that that allowed for a kind of um, uh, humanizing and normalizing. That's one point. The second one has to do with this over specialization, which Helen talked about. The more one specializes and goes narrowly into one field without being aware of what's going on outside of that field, the, the less likely they are to communicate effectively with their fellow human beings. I think of the great, I think of the great prose stylists and writers of, of the 19th century. You think of Arnold and Newman and Carlyle. And what was striking about those, those men and those scholars is their range of interest in their range of learning. I mean, they knew they knew literature and philosophy and theology, but they also knew economics and, and politics and history. Mm-hmm. And that, that capacity among, among the university educated has all but disappeared, I would say. Yeah. Nicole, you're a, this is, this is uh, just reminding me of you so much because you're, you're a very contemplative soul. You're liberally educated, but you're, you're extremely earthy. You, you raise pigs and you garden and, you know, you ran an orange farm. How does this resonate with you? Um, well, it definitely does. I was going to say a little bit earlier that I think that one thing that adding the additional addition of the practical arts adds is a buffering of pride. Um, and mm. re, I think, introduces humility into the intellectual sphere where... Mm. I think it's very easy in a classroom to sit and talk and it's very, and, and you can be on the right track or you can be on the wrong track and you can talk and it sounds good and everyone's agreeing with you and it's really nice. Hmm. Um, but you know, you measure incorrectly and your plumbing doesn't fit. 
that's a, that's a real encounter with the cold hard truth. And I think that that's an important, um, well, just an important lesson to, or a reality. It put a, it put a damper on your philosophical conversations, right? Without <laughs> working plumbing. I mean, well, yeah. And we're talking about uh, the problem we have right now of a type of, of nihilism in which truth is denied. That can be achieved. Relativity. Relativity, exactly. You, that can be achieved if you're just talking about ideas. Mm -hmm. But like you just said, Nicole, if I deny the size of, uh, of a fitting, if I say, no, to me, it's one inch, but it's actually three quarters inch, then no matter how much I may say that fitting is a half inch fitting <laughs> and I'm trying to screw a pipe in, water is going to be spewing out because it's a three, fourths inch fitting. Um, and so again, with the practical side, the vocational manual work, you don't really have the luxury of being a relativist. If you, if you do not put a, uh, a stud in square on your building, um, if you don't even bother to measure because me what is measurement? Well, then you know what's going to happen to that building and it's not gonna be a pretty site. So again, <laughs> the manual good. trades really don't allow for the type of uh, ridiculousness that we have seen enter into the intellectual life. Or, so. or, or fruit, fruitless or futile speculation. It's gotta be true. It's gotta be true. Exactly. Yeah. I learned this lesson in a very funny way when I was an early undergraduate and actually one of the founders of AMI, uh, Stephen Courtright, had a group of uh, students over to his house to help raise a beam under his basement to jack his old Victorian house up. But anyway, at one point, um, he says to me, this needs to be level. And I, I'm a very soft-handed man, or at least I was growing up. But anyway, he says, this needs to be level. And I asked him, level to what? <laughs> and he looks back at me and he says, to the center of the earth. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I learned something uh, it was rather profound in a, in a, in a pretty, in a pretty concrete way. So anyway, uh -huh. uh, I love it. You're right. There's no room for relativism in carpentry where things have to be level, plumb and true. Um, yeah. yeah. So tell us what, so what can a student at Kateri College of the Liberal and Practical Arts expect? What sort of, what sort of student ethos will be offered? Well, first, they can expect to be treated like an adult. Uh, we've mm. been talking about this a lot, and that this prolonged adolescence is a real problem in American culture right now, anyways. And this expectation that being fully coddled from the time you're 18 to 22, um, that's, that seems to be an expectation that many young people have. And it's sad because they're not being treated like adults. They're not being expected to act like adults. And so they don't move into that world of adulthood. And so at Kateri College, we will treat students as adults. They're, they're, not, they're not there to be entertained. They're there to be educated um, and, to, and to learn and also to work within community, within a spiritual community. And so we do want to set up um, a strong Catholic community that's also very open and welcome to, welcoming to non-Catholics, um, but still with the expectation that this is a Catholic, a Catholic environment. Um, and so they can expect really from day one uh, to be within this, this strong spiritual environment, but also expected to, to live up to the, their own responsibilities then as a young 
uh, a young adult as, as an 18 year old. Um, so for some examples of that, uh, in regards your tuition and work, we wanna create a college in which the student can graduate, hopefully with no debt, um, but if not without any debt, with very little debt. And how that we'd like to achieve that is that the student will pay their tuition up front. So they'll see what it, what it feels like to, to pay for something. Uh, and there's some pain involved, obviously, when you That's have great. to pay for something. <laughs> um, but we want to set up a work program in which every student works as a type of intern, a paid intern in uh, one of the trades that the, the, the college will offer, you know, construction technology, um, automotive technology. Uh, those are just two examples. But a student will work as an intern and we want them to get paid. And so every two weeks, we want them to see a paycheck uh, and to help them already with that type of ordering of their lives and their finances in which they see, I pay for something, I work and I receive a paycheck. That seems some pretty simple, but it's actually kind of a fundamental uh, adult, adult understanding of how do I manage, manage money. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one example of what a, a Kateri College student can expect. Yeah, well, another related to that is this, again, if you, if you think about the university uh, in America um, over the last uh, 50, 50 or 60 years, it's, it's, it's curious how they've, uh, they've adopted almost a kind of um, cradle to grave mentality, albeit within the 18 to 22 year old age range. But the idea that well, the university is there to provide everything, provide entertainment, provide opportunities for social life, provide sporting uh, 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 opportunities. And there's something, there's something, again, there's something uh, patronizing about this, that the university has to provide these things to an adult. Um, it also affects the economics of universities because it means that so much money, so much of the tuition is going into, you know, food courts and yep. coffee shops and lazy rivers and climbing walls. Football and programs. Yeah, yeah. And, and all those things are nice, nice enough, but um, they're expensive, number one, and they detract, um, they detract from the main purpose of education and also do not allow the students the freedom as adults to choose activities that they like apart from what's being provided for them through movie nights and, and, uh, and, and whatnot. So there'll be it'll be very lean operation necessarily so because we don't have we don't have money but even if we did I think we wouldn't go down that road um, we would more tend towards uh, what the European universities have done I mean if if a young man or a young woman wants to play soccer football well they join a local football or soccer club they don't expect their university to provide uh, a team. When do you when do you plan to launch and and open to students? What's your goal? 2024, um, which is really okay. <laughs> it's in three years. Uh, it's very ambitious, but um, we feel it's it's possible it, given what we're talking about. And we're also work, I don't want to go into it right now, but we, we are working on some partnerships with some programs already in existence here in Gallup um, that could help us to reach that opening goal of 2024. We may not be a fully independent. Um, college in regards that we offer all of the all of the courses in-house uh, but we're shooting for 2024 to be able to to begin accepting students um, mostly because we feel this is a really important education and a necessary education 
to offer to young people. We've seen the last year uh, a great decrease in students that are going to Catholic schools, uh, decrease in students that are going to public schools. And particularly if you've, if you've been looking at the news reports, there has been a, a, a major decrease in young men uh, going to college and, a, and young men who feel, who feel very lost in, in regards where they are, what they're doing. Um, and they sit around playing video games all day, not knowing what they're supposed to do. <laughs> there was a very depressing article in the Wall Street Journal about this about a week ago about this whole lost male generation. Um, and so we want to open in 2023 to give young men and women this sense of purpose um, and uh, purpose and hope for their life. Mm-hmm. So we want to open as possible. Very good. So if you're listening right now in the eighth grade or your parent, you're a parent of somebody in eighth grade or middle school, pay attention. Where can people uh, find out? KateriCollege.org. Is that right? We've got a couple of different spots. One is our webpage, www.KateriCollege.org. We also have a Facebook, uh, Facebook page, which is at Kateri College. And we've also just launched a podcast, which is available on all the podcast uh, platforms. And the, it's called Hands to the Plow. Um, and so we've done two so far. We hope to do one every every two weeks, where we're updating people about what we're what our mission is and and where we're, where we are at with it. And okay. also, what we we'll, what we want to do is as we're traveling around the country, the, the the route is not set because we're we're still waiting to hear from from parents groups, from from parishes, from homeschool groups. Um, from interested uh, Catholics and, and Christians, people indeed interested in education, and we're willing and we have the flexibility to to change change course, change direction depending on where the interest lies. So, uh, if anyone is interested in, in in hosting us or hearing about it, you know, we'd love to hear from love to so, hear. From. So, for our audience, you're you're about to launch a national RV tour to bolster <laughs> support for Kateria exactly. College. <laughs> Exactly. And, that must uh, be your nice. kids didn't go. Yes. Well, see, it was a choice. I, You're I bringing the kids. Oh, exactly. Here, here was the choice, John. It was I would either be out of town at a gallop, you know, two or more weeks a month. And I thought, well, I don't I don't want to do that to my family. Yep. So we we sold our house in Lincoln, bought the RV and decided we would just take take the take the children with us on this road show. And they're they're excited. So between promoting the college you know we'll be visiting uh uh great sites natural national parks and my oh. children who knew i grew up on the east coast are excited to go crabbing in barnegat bay and yep. swimming the ocean and seeing the capital uh, if it's still open <laughs> <laughs> you're a hero uh, that's amazing i mean rv life is so simple we did it with our kids young kids uh but they uh-huh. got by with just a couple toys and the scenery, right. you know, it's yeah. like we left our house with all this stuff, all these toys, all these books, just two or three things. And yes. they were they were just happy as clams the whole time. So it, it really uh, it really encourages a kind of uh, simplicity and minimalism. So we're, right. we're, we're looking forward to that. Yeah. Before you guys go, I know you're in a hurry, uh, but Helen, <laughs> you're going to be teaching a class real soon in the Magnus Fellowship called Friendship and Freedom in J.R.R. Tolkien, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Uh, I think it's about full right now, which is great, but maybe just give us a little plug uh, for anybody who might want to join at the last minute. 
Well, uh, people often say, you know, why should I read Tolkien? I saw the movies um, or, oh, I don't like fantasy um, or, oh, he's too easy to understand. I can just read him on my own, you know, things like that. But I always encourage people, don't even watch the movies. You've got to read the book because uh, the vision that Peter Jackson in the movies offers is Peter Jackson's vision of Middle Earth. And it's not J.R. Tolkien's vision of Middle Earth. And the vision that Tolkien offers us, especially as uh, members of a postmodern society and, and even a post-Christian society at this point, is he offers us this vision of a beautiful providential world in which the person is interconnected with the community. He or she are not just uh, isolated individuals, um, but very much part of a community which is ultimately uh, intertwined with, with, a, with a deity, a, a very loving deity. And so in this time of particular, uh, I think particularly hopeless uh, time in which we feel all these forces of darkness are, are converging on us and we don't feel like we have much freedom to move at this point. Um, Tolkien's work offers, offers the response to that sense of the, the, the power of darkness uh, and the response that he gives how power means light always, always comes back and always overpowers the darkness. And it happens precisely through good people doing what is good, no matter what the consequences are for their, for the actions, they still always choose for the good. Mm -hmm. um, and so I strongly encourage people to take it because his work is like a, 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 a breath of fresh air and a, and a real infusion of, of hope. For I'm looking forward to it. I'm where, where do you recommend people start with Tolkien? I started years ago of the Hobbit and I was never really that great at getting into fiction in general but i just i wasn't really into the hobbit it was kind of sophomoric and campy i'm like okay it's interesting but not really but then years later just recently i started burning through the cimmerillion and this is like a whole nother world mm -hmm. uh, so for me i i got into the cimmerillion a lot more than i was able to get into to the hobbit but where would you recommend starting i would actually just start with the lord of the rings with fellowship of the rings mm -hmm. because the hobbit you could say is written for children. And that was why he wrote it. It was for children, yeah. which is why it feels sophomoric. Uh, the Silmarillion is often too difficult for people. They get into it and they think, oh, this is not what I was expecting. Um, and so I would recommend that people start with the Silmarillion. Um, I would recommend if you're, you are, if you're already a teenager or older and you've never read the, the Lord of the Rings, start with the Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, and then you can move backwards to The Hobbit um, or move forwards to the Silmarillion, but the Lord of the Rings is really, even apart from the Silmarillion and the Hobbit, it's really the only work you need to read to, to well understand what Tolkien is doing regarding this creation of a secondary world that helps us to understand the, the primary world. Isn't it amazing? He just created an alternate universe. <laughs> That's right. I mean, through yeah. and through, like the brilliance of what he did. Yeah, and that's something we'll talk about in this seminar. What what is that creation of a secondary world? Uh, what does it do? Why did he do it? He's often accused of being uh, what's called an escapist, denying the reality by the creation of it. But far from being a, a denier of reality, he actually is is presenting to his audience what is truly real, and he does it through letting them see the world with with a fresh pair of a fresh pair of eyes. It, it represents, as it were. Yeah. Through, yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you a somewhat tangential question that's probably been asked before. Uh, but what is the difference between the magic at work in somebody like Tolkien and the magic at work in somebody like 
uh, or something like Harry Potter mm, uh, okay. or, or Rowling, Rowling's work. Why, yeah. why am I okay with my kids getting into Tolkien and not Rowling? <laughs> <laughs> well, Rowling, uh, in some sense, plagiarizes a lot of her work from different sources and different things. And she, for as interesting as her work is, in some sense, it's not as powerful as Tolkien's because part of what she actually does is she does take um, incantations that are true satanic incantations and she intertwines them with fake incantations, um, either purposefully or just because she doesn't really know what she's doing. Wow. I can't say. Um, but I think that's probably why you're uncomfortable with Rowling is that Tolkien never offers um, uh, full incantations of things to summon uh, to summon powers. And he also is very, um, in his letters and also in what he does, magic has to work with the natural world and for the good or else it becomes sorcery. And so Gandalf, for instance, um, always will use his power for the good. And it's a power that he's been given by another. Um, so he is a, a type of uh, lord of, of fire, of, of light. Um, and, and he uses it only for the benefit of others. But what you see going on with Harry Potter is in some sense a trite, uh, a trite use of magic. She trivializes something that actually ought not to be trivialized. Um, and she brings into the work actual uh, uh, sorcery um, wow. that is used you know, in, in black magic. Um, and so that's where you need to be careful with Harry Potter because of this um, really inappropriate use of, of, of symbols and imagery and, and, and uh, power. That, that was a re really good answer. I wonder, I wonder if part of it is, is also that in, um, in Tolkien, as in T.S. Eliot, there's an integrated vision of reality. And here is here is Rawlings sort of pulling pulling different strands for the sake of a novel, for the sake of entertainment. But it doesn't come out of that uh, integrated view of reality that you have in someone like like Tolkien or or or, or like T. S. Eliot. Um, Do you feel like Tolkien is up for a sort of resurgence, or at least a, a even a first discovery of massive interest? I think it's like mm -hmm. the twentieth century sort of opted for the doors of Disney versus the doors of Tolkien, <laughs> and 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 the results ensued that are, that are evident, right? And and it wasn't a great uh, century, but I mean, just imagine a world that that clung on to Tolkien's universe rather than Disney's. It's almost like. Just Disney's sort of this really base perversion of fantasy that we could have had with Tolkien in a more authentic way. Oh no, they're frozen. Well, can I say something on that while they unfreeze? Yes, the freeze I, have been frozen. Freeze are frozen. Um, I didn't. Well, I read Tolkien as a child, and I agree with you, John. I read. Um, the Hobbit and wasn't particularly taken. Um, I enjoyed it, but I, it wasn't revelatory. I much preferred the Chronicles of Narnia. And um, I reread the Fellowship um, and the Return of the King, the whole series, probably, I don't know. I can't remember exactly, maybe two years ago. And I was just transfixed. Like it, 
it transfixed me. I, I have never, I didn't want to read anything else or talk to anybody about anything but Tolkien for a while there. Did you read the um, Cimmerillion also or just the Fellowship? Um, I didn't read the Cimmerillion. Oh, the Cimmerillion is sitting on my bedside table as, as we speak. So it makes um, everything make sense. Like you learn what the Valars are and what a wizard yeah. is and what the, where the dwarfs came from and even a little bit of what the hobbits of, are. Yeah, the beginning of the Silmarillion, which I have read multiple times, which is the creation story, I think has got to be one of my all-time favorite things ever written, ever. It, like, it makes me cry. I think it it's so is beautiful. beautiful. And so let's just talk about that real quick. And if you guys got to go anytime, Freeze, sorry to keep you here, but we're going to make use of, of your uh, talent here. Uh, the, so you're talking about the story of the Valars and the songs and the competing songs and then the fall of Melkor, right? Um, so talk about that, Freeze, but also how allegorical is Tolkien intending his work to be? Because it's not a pure allegory. I mean, I guess if any allegory were pure, it wouldn't be an allegory. But, you know, you don't want to read Tolkien and try to sort of, uh, Melkor, you know, represents Satan and, you know, Frodo represents St. John and they find everybody in there. You know, that's not a health, healthy way to read Tolkien, right? It doesn't need to be a, a, a perfect allegory, right? You guys are muted. Unmute. There we go. Nope. Do it again. There you go. Welcome back. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Um, well, that would be an incorrect way to read Tolkien because he's very clear that he hates allegory and he hates allegory because he feels it is a basically a tyrannical way of the author to exert power over the reader. Um, and whenever you have power being exerted over another, that's where Tolkien says you got a problem. Um, and so even in his own writing, he refuses to exert that type of tyranny over the will of another. This is where Tolkien and Lewis often disagreed and disagreed very strongly about literature because Lewis felt that allegory was the best way to write literature and to evangelize others through that direct one-to-one -one correspondence. Uh, but Tolkien did not see that at all. And so he very much approaches literature the way the medievals approached literary interpretation was called the fourfold method of exegesis, uh, in which you've got differing ways to look at, for instance, scripture. You have, let me think, the literal level, you have the uh, allegorical level, you have the anagogical level, and then I always forget the fourth level. Um, so the, the, the moral? The moral. moral oh, the yeah. the, and then the last one is... Um, eschatological? Maybe? Yeah, so yeah. You've, got, you've got multiple ways to look at the same... Uh, the same scripture reading, scripture interpretation. Um, and allegory is one aspect of it, but it can't be the only aspect of it. And so that's why in, in Tolkien, it's very hard to say, oh, Gandalf represents Jesus. Uh, because yes, Gandalf represents Jesus, but he also represents other things as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so because you don't have that one-to-one -one correspondence, you don't have a type of forcing on the reader what the author absolutely intends. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Whereas in, in Lewis, yeah. Aslan represents Jesus and that's it. <laughs> so there's absolutely right. a one-to-one -one because yeah. that's the way Lewis liked to write. So Lewis would admit- It might, might to speak to the- Yeah, it might, it might speak to the difference between um, sort of Catholic and, and, and Reformation 
um, readings of, of reality uh, and, and and obviously back to back to scripture mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. John, when are you going to teach for us? I would love to. I've been, you know, I've been in my mind. It's been building now for several years. Um, we're coming up next year, the 100th anniversary of T.S. Eliot's Wasteland, which is a, um, if anybody has slogged through it, and usually it's given one or two classes, which is a shame, but it it is it is clearly one of the most incisive analyses of modernism and the problems of of modernity that has ever been penned in in this concise uh, form of poetry so i would love i would love to do an eight an eight week uh, session class simply on the wasteland to walk people through that because it's difficult um but it's well worth the trip <laughs> if you can go through it uh i Let's remember do it. early yeah, spring love to do it in the spring early spring winter maybe i mean when do you get do you want to do it from the road or wait till you get back from- no, we could do it from the road. We could start in whenever you start in January or, or February. Um, but I remember as a 15-year-old, um, first exposed to T.S. Eliot's Wasteland, and I went, read through it, and I was, I was captivated. And I read through it again and again. And as I told students uh, in my adulthood, I think I understood maybe 5 or 10% of what I was reading but I understood it well enough to know that there was something profound here and that I needed to get, get to the bottom of it. Um, so I, I, I had great um, joy teaching classes on Elliot at, at Hillsdale and elsewhere. And I think the wasteland, which again is always given short treatment, it, it's too difficult a poem to cover in a class or two, but it's, it's profound, it's rich, and it's richly rewarding to go through it. So I would love to do that. For, we would love to have that. you do it. You, I mean, uh, I've met fewer people whose former students speak more highly of them than than they do of you. So and that's how we found you. Is people people reach out to me and say you got to you got to get John free. So uh, thank you, thank you both for for doing this, and God bless your work with Kateri College. I just want to tell our audience: uh, go to kateriecollege.org. Uh, help help this thing get off the ground because. There are a few better uses of your hard-earned money than promoting that which will save civilization. Uh, and and people don't understand, I think, but, you know, Nicole, you can speak to this, but we get like, you know, you get a $25 a month donation come in and it's, it's exciting. It's like, this is how we yeah. can pay the bills, you know? And so um, efforts, efforts like ours need, need money. So I don't care uh, who you're giving it to, but, but give it's like if you can pay 20 bucks a month for your streaming services, you can pay 20 bucks a month to help good college happen uh, because it's speaking of <laughs> wasteland. It's such a wasteland in, in the college world right now. And so um, vote with your dollars. Thank you. Thank John. you, John. Thank Thanks. you. So much. Okay, thank, you thank you both. Have a great time in the RV, Nicole. Okay. Anything else you want to say? No, thank you. I'm moderating your class, so I'm really excited. Okay, <laughs> oh, Okay. All right, guys. All right. God All bless the- you both. Take care. Well, great to talk with you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.